Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. Thank you guys for reading that, uh, that story. Excited to dive in uh, to this story with you all today. Uh, but just wanted to, to name one thing before we uh, get going. And Josh mentioned that this Wednesday we have our Ash Wednesday service. It's a beautiful service. We would love for you to attend. Um, but... Every year, uh, Larry and I probably get like five or six emails from people asking, hey, are you Catholic? Because you're celebrating Ash Wednesday. And so we just wanted to clarify, we are not Catholic. Um, but what we are is something called you charismatic. And in that we believe in church tradition and some of the, the services and ways that people have engaged with the faith in the past. And we want to engage with those as well. And so one of those practices is, is hosting an Ash Wednesday service where we come together um, and remember our mortality and what Christ has done for us. Um, and just because we have an Ash Wednesday service does not mean that we're Catholic. So just if, if anyone's confused why we have that, I feel like it's, it's worth naming. All right, to get started today uh, with this amazing story from Acts 17, I want to do a straw poll with you all real quickly. And I think this is a question that you won't have a problem answering, but I'd actually like some participation. I'd like for you to vote um, and raise your hand. Um, and this is the, the question. When you look at our society and you look at our culture, would you say that, that over the last 50 years or so, we have grown more Christian or less Christian? So if you think uh, we are a more Christian culture, more Christian society, go ahead, raise your hands, cast your vote. There's like one person, okay? Uh, and then it was kind of like a sheepish one. It was like, I think, uh, no, no one else? Okay, cool. <laughs> All right, if you think we are not a more Christian society or culture, go ahead, raise your hand. All right, a lot more hands. And some of you didn't vote, which is the problem with this country. <laughs> just, just kidding, just kidding. Uh, second question. Would you say that overall, over the last 50 years, we, we have become a better culture and society? Raise your hand if you think, yeah, we're, we're improving, we're progressing, things are getting better. Yeah, okay, few. And like, nope, we are just like going down the toilet. It is just like bad. Okay, more hands. All right. I want to read you a quote uh, from a, a man and a pastor named Mark Sayers who's fascinated with the intersection between Christianity and Western culture and where it's headed. And this is what he says. There is no going back. Awesome. We will most likely live the entirety of our lives in an increasingly diverse, contested, globalized, and divided world. This world will also be a fragile one. And thus, such a moment will be served by a church that is relevant by being resilient. With change and chaos as the norm, a nostalgic desire to return to the golden days is deeply tempting. But instead of wanting to return to the past, we must learn from the past. What Mark Sayers is talking about is I think this tension that many of us feel about the way that our culture is moving into a post-Christian reality where the things of the past, the things that were kind of common beliefs, the norms and narratives of our culture uh, have moved past Christianity. And we as a church are living in that tension of a post-Christian culture as Christians. 
And the question that, that Larry and I keep coming back to is what does it mean to be a church, to be the people of God in a post-Christian culture? And, and some of you might be tired of this sermon and be like, gosh, I feel like we just talk about post-Christianity all the time and it feels like we keep coming back to this idea. But I, I think it's an important one for us to return to. Because living in the tension of a post-Christian culture where people have moved past Christianity and have moved to a space where Christianity is no longer the center of their worldview means that we have to adapt to the culture around us. This idea that we've moved to a post-Christian culture, the idea of this secular humanism of pushing forward is really this idea that if we remove God from our cultural narratives, we will come to a place that's better for humanity. That as we progress, that's the driving engine behind history, not God's presence. And that if we as a people just continually pursue this excellence and strive for, for removing God from these areas, then we'll find the salvation that we're looking for, which is a very different message than what we believe as Christians and as followers of Jesus. The post-Christian story is a story which says that as the world moves away from faith and belief in God, that world will inevitably become a better place. And we have to talk about this reality and where we're moving to. And there's two reasons I think Larry and I and the other preachers keep coming back to this idea. And the first is if we're living in the tension of a post-Christian culture, we need to know how to navigate the tension of a post-Christian culture as followers of Jesus. And when we look at the church and Christians and how we often try to navigate this space, I feel like there's often three responses or three reactions to this kind of cultural chaos that we find ourselves in at the moment. And the first is that when we come to navigating the tension, we, we kind of imitate culture. We just adopt the cultural norms and narratives around us to the point where, where some of us in certain areas, we don't look that different than the culture at all. We've just kind of adopted their norms, their narratives, placed them and baptized them with Christianity and said, yeah, we're just kind of going to be like them. Others of us at different times, we take a different approach and we isolate ourselves from the culture. We separate ourselves from the culture. We have this kind of mentality that's like, hide your kids, hide your wife, don't let them get you. Right? And so we just kind of try to remove ourselves and then pull away and create our own communities where everyone looks like us and thinks like us and acts like us and we don't have to deal with the tension anymore. And then at other times, the church has taken an approach where we don't isolate or imitate culture, but we actually try to dominate culture. We see the changes that are happening in the world and, and we want to push back. We don't like where things are going, and we think, man, we just have to fight harder. We just have to, to stand up for ourselves. We just have to push back against the norms and narratives of the culture around us. The problem is, as Mark Sayer says, is there's no going back. We can't vote ourselves out of this crisis. And while each of these different responses can be tempting at times, I think we would all probably agree that, that they don't necessarily follow the heart of Christ. And Christ for sure didn't isolate himself from the problems and tensions in the world. He didn't seek to imitate the culture around him, and he, and he certainly didn't try to dominate the culture around him. And so when we talk about navigating a post-Christian culture, that's one of the reasons we keep bringing it up is, is what does it look like to, for the church to remain faithful to who Jesus is and to navigate this cultural moment? And the second reason I think we keep returning to this idea is because it, it helps give us perspective. 
Because as we talk about living in this post-Christian culture, it's easy to think that, man, society is just unraveling. And you look at churches and it, think, it seems like there's just this poverty of spirituality and that, that the church is in decline and maybe even dying in the post-Christian America. And we can see the darkness winning and, and we have this perspective like everything is coming undone. But theologically, biblically, when we talk about living in a post-Christian culture, what we forget is that, that from a biblical perspective, we are living in the time of which Jesus has proclaimed all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples, and I am with you always to the very end of the age. See, it may look like we live in a post-Christian culture. It may look like things are deteriorating and unraveling, and yet we know theologically that we live in the time frame where Jesus reigns on his throne. And no matter what is going on in culture, it does not mean that Jesus has been dethroned. And it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit has withdrawn his presence from the world. And God certainly hasn't given up his project of redemption and salvation for the world. And see, so even in this age where it feels like things might be coming undone, we believe that God is at work. And how do we join him in that work? And so as Mark Sayers said, we, ha we can't go back to the past, but we can learn from the past. And I think that's the task before us today. When we look at Paul in Athens, we see this, this beautiful case study of what it looks like. And granted, Paul was not talking to a post-Christian culture. They were pre-Christian. They hadn't even really heard of Christianity yet. But there are so many similarities between pre-Christian culture and post-Christian culture. And the way that Paul navigates this tension is masterful. And so what I'd like to do today is look at Paul's time in Athens. And, and what we're going to do is we're going to examine what Paul saw while he was in Athens, what Paul heard while he was in Athens, and what Paul said while he was in Athens. And while we look at what Paul saw and heard and said, we're going to pull some principles from this story that will hopefully help us navigate our present and the tension that we often find ourselves in. So to start, we begin with what Paul saw in Athens, and we pick up in verse 16 and 17. And I'm not going to reread those. Our readers did a fantastic job, but I just want to highlight a few points from the story to get us moving through this amazing story. So it starts, and it says, when Paul was in Athens, he was greatly distressed by what he saw, because what he saw was a city that was just full of idols. In fact, one historian said of Athens that there were more idols in this city than there were people. In fact, it's estimated at this time that there were about 30,000 people living in Athens, and there were over 70,000 idols and statues and different gods that people were worshiping. I mean, this, this idolatry, it was a part of their infrastructure and their buildings and their roads. In fact, if you just looked at the skyline of Athens, you would see idols everywhere you looked. And they're worshiping all of these different gods. And in case we are, are prone to judging people of the past, thinking, oh my gosh, like how can you just believe in all these different stones and statues and things that are inanimate and believe that they have something to do? We do this all the time. Idols are, are essentially what we place our trust in. They're the things that we give our hopes and our desires to that we think can bring some sort of satisfaction and meaning and purpose and fulfillment to our life. And while we may not always worship statues, although sometimes we do, 
There are plenty of other things in our lives and in our world that we can turn to in the hopes that that will satisfy and fulfill our desires. Paul sees this happening in the city, and he is overwhelmed. There's this, this sense of urgency to what he feels. This distress that he feels is actually a, a word that's often used for God in the Old Testament when he sees humanity or the people of Israel chasing after other gods. It's this idea that, that what they're doing is harmful to who they are, and he's filled with this, this compassion. He's provoked to say something, to do something, because he knows the way they are heading will only hurt and harm them. It's similar to how I think sometimes I interact with my daughter Camden. She's three and a half years old, and, and most of the time, when I show any kind of anger or when I shout at her, it's often because she's about to hurt herself. Just the other day, she was climbing on her kitchen table and it started wobbling and she's climbing on the chairs around it and I see that she's about to fall and I just shout at her and it looks like anger. It scares her, but I'm trying to say, don't do that, you're going to harm yourself. When she starts running out into traffic or into the parking lot at church, I say, stop. That way will hurt you, and it looks like anger. It scares her, but it's coming from a place of love and urgency. I want to protect you. What Paul has in this moment is calling upon this emotion that God has for us when we place our hope and our trust and our desires and our fulfillment in things that cannot satisfy us. And Paul says, stop. Don't go this way. God is saying that way will only lead to emptiness and harm. Come back to me. So Paul's moved and provoked and distressed by what he sees in Athens. He's filled with this compassionate longing and urgency to see them return to the one true God. And so that's what Paul sees in Athens, is all this idolatry, all these different ways that people are worshiping a different God. And this is what Paul hears in Athens in verse 18. He hears a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and he, he begins a debate with them. They begin this conversation where in the marketplace, they're asking, hey, what do you believe? And this is kind of what we believe. And they're going back and forth, round and round about all their different beliefs. And someone asked him, what is this babbler trying to say? Now, this is a really interesting image of what's happening here because the, the image they're saying of Paul, this idea of him being a babbler, is that, that he's like a bird that just goes around and picks up little seeds everywhere he goes, and he doesn't have like a coherent worldview. So if you've ever shared the gospel with someone and you've gotten to that point and you're like, man, I just have no idea if what I'm saying makes any sense, and they look like what I'm saying makes no sense to them, so is Paul. You're in good company. It's okay. It's hard sometimes. They think he's just this person that's just kind of picking up all these different ideas and has a scattered worldview. And they're confused by what he's saying. And it's interesting that Luke goes out of his way to name two different philosophies that were prevalent at the time. He names Epicurean and Stoic philosophers that Paul is in this debate with and this conversation with. And what's fascinating about, about Luke naming these two different philosophies is, is we've actually seen some of these philosophies make a comeback in our own day. And so philosophers like Epicureans in their time, in this time, that they were materialists. And they didn't really believe in any God, except they wouldn't really say that out loud. Because if they did, they would get in trouble for saying they didn't really believe in God. 
But they were materialists who believed that after death there was just nothing. Our bodies decomposed in the ground and our souls just evaporated. There's nothing after death, and and there's probably not gods, but if there are gods, then they're just so far removed from our everyday existence that they have no divine interaction with our stories and with our world. They're just living their own life of leisure and pleasure far off from where we are. And they're removed and distant. And that led them to this place where, well, if the gods are away and don't care about us, then, then there's going to be no judgment for us. And in any ways, if we all die and just decompose and, and dissolve, then there's no judgment we have to worry about. So let's just live for the now. Let's just pursue pleasure because that's the source of happiness. I mean, we hear this all the time in our own day with this idea of you do you. Whatever makes you happy will fulfill you. You are the author of your own happiness and satisfaction, and no one can tell you otherwise. Just pursue pleasure. That's the key to the good life, because all we have is now. The Stoics, they were, they were quite different than the Epicureans, and they weren't materialists. They were pantheists. They believed that divinity was in everything and a part of everything, and, and that it was just kind of this, this universal life force that connected all of us. And so God was in me, and God is in you, and God is in this chair, and God is in this stage, and everything is interconnected by this life force and this, this beautiful God who's, who's involved in all sorts of things. But, but he's not in control of anything. He's just a part of everything. And so when you look at history, it's just chaos followed by order, followed by chaos, followed by order. And there's no point or direction of history. It's just kind of all happening, and there's no control over any of it. And they approached life from a place of of self-sufficiency. If they can just get the right habits and get the right things in place, then they can provide salvation for themselves. They can provide themselves with the life they're looking for, which, again, is like every TikTok and Instagram influencer ever. Is if you get this morning routine, if you go to the gym this many times, you will have the body and life that you were looking for. Here's the key to a five-hour work week and satisfaction and work-life balance. It's all these ways that we strive to self-sufficiently solve all of our problems and look for salvation. So Paul hears these different philosophies, and he's in conversation with them, and, and many of them don't sound that different than our own philosophies of today. But the second thing that Paul hears is this interesting phrase where Luke tells us that they remark to him, it seems like this man is advocating for foreign gods. Now, Luke is going out of his way in this moment to to say exactly what they told us. Most of this story is kind of highlights and and overview. But he really wants us to get this. And, And the reason why is that this is not the first time that someone in Athens has been accused of introducing foreign gods to their city. In fact, this was the accusation against the philosopher. the philosopher Socrates about 500 years earlier. And as he was teaching in Athens, they accused him of introducing new gods. They brought him before this very same council 500 years earlier, accused him of this, put him on trial, and had him executed for introducing foreign gods into their city. Now, the question that arises is, what do they care if there are foreign gods introduced to this city? They have 70,000 idols 
Like, why in the world? What's one more? What's two more even? Like, there's 70,000. Why do they care? And, and what we know is that their society was not that different than our own. And what they worshipped, the things that they pursued, the things that they thought would bring satisfaction and order to the world, those narratives are important. And so when Socrates started proclaiming gods that didn't fit their narratives, this tolerant society began to push back and said, yeah, we're tolerant, but only so far. When you start pushing some of the things that we believe in and some of the things that are important to us, then, then actually you're pushing against society itself, and we can't have that. So here's some poison. You see, what's happening in this moment is very similar to our own society. In that when we proclaim things like Paul did, that, that Jesus is Lord, that pushes against cultural narratives. In fact, the philosophers of the time, the Stoics, they had this, this idea that, that there were true gods, false gods, and necessary gods. And the true gods, big surprise, were the ones they believed in and the ones they worshipped. The, the false gods were the ones from mythology, like Zeus and all that, and they were just, you know, representations that people had to, to make them feel better. And then the necessary gods were the gods that, that were worshipped to try to bring order to society. That through worship and cultural narratives, that's actually how society is formed. And when you start pushing against those things, then things begin to unravel. It's a threat to how we do life. And the gospel's pushing against some of those things. And so they make this accusation. They bring him before the council. And, and we don't think that Paul's on trial for his life in this moment. What we think is happening is that he's being investigated to see, are you actually doing what we think you're doing? Are you actually introducing new gods? Because if you are, then we're going to go to trial and decide what to do with you. So this is a, a moment where Christianity is on trial. And so Paul hears this happening, and he's accused of this, and he goes before the council, and he gives a speech to this council on Mars Hill. And Luke gives us a, like, two- to three-minute summary of what Paul says, and he just kind of hits the high points. And we know this is probably a summary because in that day, typical practice was to give a, a two- to three-hour speech. And we also know something about Paul from earlier in Acts that Paul could be kind of long-winded. In fact, one time he started preaching around sunset and preached past midnight, and he was preaching so long and it was so dull that someone fell asleep in a window and fell out of that window and killed themselves. So if you were bored now, just know no one's died, so we're doing okay, all right? I know there's a lot of history. I know it's kind of heady, but, but we're not there yet, hopefully, okay? And so we know Paul can be long-winded. So this is probably a two- to three-minute summary of a two- to three-hour speech he gives in front of him. I wish we had more time to go into detail about the ways that Paul engages with them because he is a masterful communicator. He is absolutely brilliant in how he navigates the cultural tension. I mean, he's quoting their philosophers. He's, he's using their reasoning and, and finding common ground with them. And then he's finding places where it's like, I know we both agree on this, but have you thought about this? I mean, he's, he's pushing assumptions and he's bringing them to a place where they can encounter this unknown God amongst them. Because that's where he starts. He, he says that as he's gone around the city, and this is in, Terry, uh, I think it's in verse 22, where the, the beginning of Paul's speech as he stood up and he, he tells them what he's been doing for the last few days. And he says that as I've been walking around, I've seen that you're very religious. And I've carefully examined your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. 
See, when Paul sees that they're worshiping all these idols, when he sees all the different ways that they're pursuing things that are not true, he doesn't condemn them, he doesn't judge them. He says, I know from what I've seen that you are searching for something. Let me tell you about what it is that you have been searching for. And I'm not preaching a new deity. You have an unknown deity. You even say you worship a God who you don't know. Let me introduce you to him. See, he finds this common ground with with things they already believed in order to point them to a God who wants to know them. And so he finds common ground in this space. And then the the, the meat of Paul's message, it really comes down to to two basic ideas. He starts by proclaiming about how sovereign God is and how above the world he is. The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth. He's not built by human hands like all of the things that we're worshiping. This God is sovereign and creator of all. And so to the philosophers in that space who think that, yeah, God is big, he's above, he's beyond, he's distant, they're in agreement. And to the ones who think that God is just in the chair in the room, Paul's saying, no, you don't understand, God is not in everything, God is above everything. And then he goes on and he says that not only is this God creator and sovereign, he said God has, has been in control of all the nations and all of human history. It's all moving in a certain direction. But not only is he sovereign and creator and ruler, God has been active in the world so that we might seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. And so to the people who think that, yeah, God is just a part of everything, he says, you're you're on the right track. God is near. He's nearer than you can imagine. But to those of you who think that God is just some far off, distant reality who doesn't care about humanity, let me introduce you to the God who stepped into our story and is a part of our world. Do you see how he just navigates the different spaces and beliefs of the day? And so he pushes back against the areas that they've gone wrong, but he finds this common ground. And then he pushes them to a place. He wraps up his speech with this idea of repentance and with a resurrection. And he says that God has been active in the world and has been close and and ruler of all. And all of human history is headed towards a place where he commands us to repent and where he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. See, something's changed in the world. There's a person named Jesus who came into the world that represents this unknown God so that we might know him. And all of human history is headed towards him. And we know that he is the appointed one of God because God raised him from the dead. And he is the one who will renew all things. See, Paul just navigates this tension so beautifully and so eloquently. And what do we learn from that? I mean, none of us are Paul. I mean, he is one of the most influential people in all of human history. None of us are are probably as brilliant as he is. None of us are Paul. I mean, I'm Paul. My name is Paul, but I'm not that Paul, right? So, like, what do we do? How can we pull some things, some principles? Well, there's four things that I just want to quickly run through in our last few minutes together that that show us some of the things that Paul does in this space that can help us navigate our own moment in culture. 
The first is this. We see Paul notice the narratives that are happening in this city. And what I mean by noticing the narratives is Paul states, and Luke tells us earlier in the story, that as Paul is going through Athens, he's carefully observing everything that is happening. But it's not just that he's looking at with his eyes. The, the word that, that Luke uses and that Paul says of himself is that I, I engaged with this to experience it for myself. Not so that he's imitating the culture around them, but that, so that he can know what it is that they actually believe, know what it is that they're worshiping, know what it is that they're looking for, for fulfillment and satisfaction and what they're placing their trust and their hopes and their dreams in, so that Paul can point them to the gospel. He's noticing the narratives that are taking place in this city. And we have to be a people to understand what is going on in our culture around us. That, that we're not ignorant of the things that our culture is telling us are true. That the narratives that people are placing their hope and their trust in. I mean, if we talk about moving into a post-Christian culture and the idea that, that we don't need God any longer and that we'll be better off the more we can remove God from our society, what our culture is finding out is that that narrative is having a moment of doubt because we are seeing a correlation between the more that happens and the rise of loneliness, which has now become a public health issue. We're seeing statistics that, that sociologists and psychologists are calling deaths of despair, deaths that are related to drug and alcohol and suicide. And what we're seeing is that the more we remove people, we're not moving towards a happier, more holistic society. We're, we're miserable. The narrative's not working. Then we have to recognize that so we can tell people about the gospel, but we have to do what Paul does and, and not see just the problems of society, but see the people who are around us. See, Paul doesn't just see all these things that are happening in in the world and in the culture and all the different ways that they're, they're going down these paths that are leading to destruction and aren't good for them and, and just judge them and condemn them for that. He's moved and provoked with compassion. He sees that they are people created in the image of God that God loves and desires to be drawn near to him, that this unknown God amongst them wants to be known. I was confronted with that this, this past week. I don't know, some of you have probably seen this, some of you maybe this is news, but there was a lot of pushback against some of what went on in the Grammys, in a particular performance, where, where Christians kind of pushed back and said, man, there, this is satanic, this is sexual, this is evil. And I don't know that I disagree. But is our response to condemn... Or does it move us with compassion towards people who believe differently than us? When we see the way that our culture is lost, when we see the things that they're placing their trust and their hoping, do we have empathy and pity and long to see them know the God who will actually meet them in those spaces and provide hope and healing and redemption? One philosopher and, and sociologist, and he says this, religion declined not because it was refuted, but because it became irrelevant, dull, and oppressive. When religion speaks only in the name of authority rather than with the voice of compassion, its message becomes meaningless. 
I worry that at times our message has become meaningless because we see the, the problems of our society and we condemn people for the way that they're going rather than being moved and provoked in compassion to introduce them to the God who desires to save them. And Paul also, he's a, he's a master at finding common ground. Luke goes out of his way to tell us that, that Paul goes to the places where these conversations are happening. He goes to the marketplace. He goes to the spaces where people are engaging with conversations around meaning and purpose and what they place their trust in. He goes to them. I think in a post-Christian culture, the, the church has to realize that, that people aren't just going to magically find us. We are on the fringes, the outside. We are, people are not just going to move towards us. If you build it, they will come. Works great for Kevin Costner. It is a terrible evangelism strategy in post-Christian America. People aren't just going to find us. We have to go to the places where people are lost. We have to go to the marketplace, to the workplace, to our neighborhoods, to the gym, to the academy, to our schools. We have to be present. We cannot isolate ourselves from our culture around us. But Paul doesn't just find like literal common ground. He doesn't just go to the physical spaces. He also finds common ground with how he engages with their ideas. He finds places and points of agreement. He, he's studied their culture. He understands what it is they believe. And he finds spaces where they can be in agreement so he can point them to the ultimate truth of who God is. Two weeks ago, I had a former student, um, and I love that he did this. I love that he was aware of what was happening, but he, he sent me a video from um, Barstool Sports. Anyone familiar with Barstool Sports? Okay, a few people. It's basically like, for those of you who don't know, it's basically like ESPN for frat boys, okay? Like, it's just people who are looking for significance in sex and sports. That's it. That's what it is. But he sent me this video and it's this conversation that's happening on a podcast where people are saying, like, I, they just came across this, like, this amazing information. They had no idea it was true. But, but what they discovered is that science is showing, people are researching, that if you live with someone before you get married to them, it has, like, terrible effects on your ultimate marriage. That, that like, living together is not a good thing for you. And, like, I can't believe this. Like, this is changing my world. How many times when we see that kind of thing in the world, are we prepared to say, yeah, you know who I can introduce you to is the God who designed us that way? I mean, do we see the opportunity for places in our culture where people are, are speaking the truth of who God is and pointing them to that ultimate truth? And then finally, Paul, he keeps the focus on God in this space. In his conversations with these people, he keeps pointing to God's sovereignty, his intimacy. He's talking about his character, how he's active in human history, the way that he's involved in the world. He just wants them to meet this unknown God. And what if we were a people in our conversations with our neighbors and our coworkers and our family and our friends who, who just kept the focus on God in these conversations? What if in a culture that believes God is in everything, we told them the good news about a God who is above all things? What if in a culture that believes everything one day will one day die out and burn out when the sun eventually dies, we share the good news that history does not end when all things just magically burn away, but when God renews all things? Even a culture longing for justice that often turns to violence, we introduce them to a God who will one day enact his justice 
and make all things right? What if in a culture of ceaseless striving and habits trying to perfect and perform our way to salvation, we introduce people to a God who said, it is finished. Your salvation lies in me. What if in a culture of people who believe God is far off and distant and uncaring, we introduce them to the God who is Jesus Christ, who came near who knows our pain and our suffering, who's not just some cosmic reality that's for us in some abstract way, but a God who knows us by name and knows the hairs on our head and walks through life with us in intimacy. You see, Paul, as he's engaging this culture, he has this firm belief that I think sometimes the church loses this conviction. He has this firm belief that the pagan world can be redeemed. That that God is at work making all things new. That God is at work drawing people to himself. And Waterstone, I wonder and I question, do we have that same conviction? Do we believe in a God who is on his throne, working through history, who has sent his spirit to empower us? And that in his name, all things, all situations, and all people can be redeemed. That's the God that we believe in. And what's amazing about this story is that Paul, some people look at this and they think, wow, what a failure. This is how the story ends. Look at these words. It says that some of them, when they heard what Paul had to say, they just openly mocked him. When they heard about the resurrection, they thought he was absurd. They thought he was just an ignoramus. He had nothing of value to them. They just mocked him openly. But there were some who who said they wanted to hear him again. They were curious to keep the conversation going. And then we're told that a few people believed, and we're told two of them and a few others. I mean, there are points in the book of Acts where where people preach and, and like thousands come to faith. And in this situation, some mocked, some were curious to keep the conversation going, and a few believed. And people look at that and think, man, what a failure on Paul's part. I wish the church could fail that hard today. See, there will always be people who think what we believe is absurd. But are we able to engage with culture in such a way that certain people want to keep the conversation going? Do we have the ability to navigate this cultural moment so that some might even believe? You see, I think we can talk about a post-Christian culture, but what we have to remember, what we have to believe, what we have to understand is that God is on his throne. He has, has prepared us, created us, made you for this cultural moment. It is no accident that any of us believe in God at this time and point in history. And he wants to use us, speak through us, work with us to proclaim the good news of the gospel to a world in desperate need of hearing it. Do we have the conviction to believe that our world can be redeemed and that God is not yet done with our friends and our family 
and the people that we have been praying for, hoping that they would come back to him. Will we join him in those spaces to proclaim the good news of who Jesus Christ is? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, I know that there are many in this room who, when we talk about a a post-Christian world, God, they're just tired, worn out. It's hard to see where you're at in the midst of the, the cultural chaos that we find ourselves in. I pray for anyone in that space, God, that, that you would just send a, a, fresh, a fresh spirit upon them, that they would see that you are working. God, for those of us who are, are tired of praying for people that we deeply love and want to see come to you and we just think it's hopeless, God, may you give us hope again. May you give us the belief and the understanding that no situation is beyond redemption. God, may you give us the wisdom, the maturity, the love and compassion to move towards our world with the truth of who you are. God, may we be a people who proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to a desperate and dying world so that they can experience redemption so that the unknown God amongst us might be known. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.